Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. In an era marked by both the threat of international terrorism and increasing domestic political polarization, sensitivity to radical movements and radical ideas takes on an increasing significance in many organizations, perhaps most of all within the U.S. Armed Forces. Respecting the range of political opinions within the force while also being aware of potential concerns remains a complex undertaking, both while individuals are serving and when they leave the force. Trying to figure out the best policies for dealing with radicalization when it is discovered remains complex. Our guest today, Colonel Robert Payne, who is both a U.S. Army Reservist and an FBI agent, has developed a particular interest in the problem of radicalization and the means to manage it or combat it. Since his time at the U.S. Army War College, where he completed a strategy research project entitled Radicalization Within the Ranks, Countering Military Extremism. Today, we'd like to talk about his work, its relationship to policy, and the ways that we should consider the problem of radicalization going forward. And so Colonel Robert Payne is a 2020 graduate of the U.S. Army War College. Before that, he graduated from Texas A&M University and was commissioned as a Medical Service Corps officer, having served five years active duty and 16 years in the U.S. Army Reserve. His current reserve assignment is as a research fellow assigned to the U.S. Army War College Center for Strategic Leadership, Homeland Defense, and Security Issues. In his civilian profession, Colonel Payne is an FBI Supervisory Special Agent, or SSA, with special background in narcotics, counterterrorism, organized crime, human operations, and most recently, healthcare fraud. It's a delight to have you back, uh, at least virtually, at the War College. Colonel Payne, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Ron. It is good to hear your voice as well. That's right. I guess full disclosure, when Robert was a student at the U.S. Army War College, he was in my seminar, and I was an advisor on that strategy research project. So yes. we've talked about these issues before. Yeah. So let's start. Let's talk about your, your War College experiences and how you ended up choosing this topic for your strategic uh, research project. Certainly. This was, um, you know, for any student at the Army War College, I think the path to selecting your strategic research project is, uh, is, is a challenge. I mean, you kind of come into it, you're drinking from the fire hose, and it's hard to hone in on something. I'd initially thought as a G1, uh, I would do something more personnel-based on talent management. But when I really sat down and thought about it, I wanted to do something of a topic or research that I had more passion about. So this tied specifically to my civilian profession. I've been on three joint terrorism task forces, uh, have a significant background in counterterrorism. And over the years, as a current serving member of the military, 
it's always been a, a concern to me that we've had so many extremists that have ties to military service. And I thought this was an excellent opportunity to have that kind of time to really dig into it and talk to some really smart people about it and expand on the knowledge base that I'd already had. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's how I came to that conversation and, and starting to do the work I've done. Um, how does the FBI deal with uh, the problem of radicalization in the sense of does the FBI keep track of radical movements or forces and how how do we keep an eye on the problem of individual radicalization or or does does the fbi begin by looking at organizations and then it's it's just a matter of whether people within those organizations attract particular attention i think the best way to answer that and, and first and foremost in full disclosure um as i talk about these topics this is all based on my individual research and my own personal observations and in no way reflects the uh, fbi right uh, this is just a perspective that I've gained from the research that I've done. But to answer your question, let's, let's first talk about really the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, we protect that. Right. And so the right for someone to be radical in of itself is okay. It is legal by our system. So the FBI, first and foremost, uh, you know, leads its investigations and its intelligence research based solely on those that are in potential violation of federal law, which would be someone that has a, a, an ideology, an extremist view that has now started on a path to potential mobilization mm -hmm. and, and us trying to get in front of the threat, really. Um, and we use intelligence in which to do that so that we can really ascertain, hey, are we dealing with a true extremist that may, may cause harm? Mm -hmm. Well, because the, the, the flip side of that then is, back, uh, is within the armed forces, what kind of programs exist to, uh, to increase sort of sensitivity to the potential for radicalization sort of while respecting the range of political views that members of the forces may hold? So that, that's a great question, too, is what separates uh, really the average American citizen of protection by the First Amendment is a U.S. military member doesn't have those same level of protections uh -huh. under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So commanders have at their discretion uh, certain policies set forth that prohibit extremist activities. Uh, that being said, it's, it's not that easy to prove that, especially mm -hmm. if someone wants to hide that, that participation in a group. And, it, and it's still, you know, for anybody that's been a military commander, uh, speaking in any way that you may think you're infringing on a soldier or an NCO's First Amendment rights uh, is, is a very sensitive thing. So things that people say can be a tip off, mm -hmm. uh, things that people act or organizations they participate in uh, are the things that could clearly let a command know there's something that should be of significant concern based on extremist views or extremist behaviors. And under what circumstances can radical views or actions or memberships lead to involuntary separation from the armed forces? It depends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so as, that's, as, that's an excellent, uh, excellent army war college response. Uh, yes, sir. Exactly. There is no, uh, that, that's one of the biggest challenges I found in my research is DOD and the military branch services as anti face a big challenge uh, because there's a certain level of silos that exist amongst each branch of service. 
And so within each branch of service, you have their law enforcement entities, for example, Army CID. Mm -hmm. But you also have insider threat hubs. And there's 44 disparate insider threat hubs across the DOD. And so there's no one specific executive agent that's truly tracking the concept of, hey, if I have extremist person in the ranks in this location, uh, or what happens when they separate? Because mm-hmm. there's, there's a, a moment in time in which a person, if upon a concern and under UCMJ is separated, that we have to make sure that that bridge is connected so that the National Joint Terrorism Task Force Military Operations Support Team is made aware so that they can notify the correct FBI division to assume that person back into society and begin to do a logical investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, and That so, doesn't always go well. Right, doesn't always go well. Well, and um, since we've started speaking very broadly, I wanted to ask you, based on your research, what uh, what case studies or specific cases uh, do you have of people who were radicals, uh, who, who were in the armed forces and then engaged in radical political activity after leaving the armed forces? Okay. Let me kind of answer that in three ways. Uh, first and foremost is this is a contentious topic. Mm-hmm. No question. Uh, the idea that I'm not subscribing to is that if you serve in the military, you are prone to extremism b- mm. by no means. Right. But what I am, based on my research, subscribing to is that the the statistical population of the U.S. military that ha- that have become terrorists is very small. Mm-hmm. But right. of the U.S. terrorist population of the of the the studies that have identified extremists within the U.S. population. There is a higher statistical number that have served in the U.S. military, which I think is of the most significant concern to DOD, uh, the the United States intel community, and just the United States national security. Hmm. Um, So there's there's several studies, both first academic, that substantiated this. Um, Academia, as you well know, as you you have uh, existed in a life of, has a much greater ability to do these long research studies that I was able to pull from to, to prove some of the statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it goes back to as early as June 2016, when the University College of London had a D- Department of Justice award. And they did an initial study where 71 lone offenders, extremists, and 22 of them had military experience. So you're talking about 32%. And you know, wow. for me, that, that's uncomfortable. So that's mm-hmm. when I first saw it. You move forward to the prosecution project, which is the Miami University of Ohio, they have a, a, an ongoing database of that they've tracked since 1990 of people who have attempted or successfully conducted some violent act in, based on ideology, based mm-hmm. on a, a view. And there's 2,395 of in that database as of a few months ago. What kind of concerned me when I looked into that one is that they have no way to verify military service outside of what's in open source. Okay. But, but their research was able to show 150 named people in their data sets that had been active duty or prior service. Just out of that 2,400 people. Yeah, right. right. And that's, mm-hmm. But that's only what they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then lastly, the one the one particular unique research project that so many extremist uh, subject matter experts have referred to over time is the University of Maryland. They do the study of terrorism and response to terrorism called the START. 
Well, back in 2018, they did a profiles of individual radicalization in the U.S., uh, I think funded by the National Institute of Justice. But here's the thing on that one. You've got a database of extremists of, of, of 2,148, roughly. And when they were able to parse out the extremists within that database that they could confirm military service, it was 1,456. Uh, again, for me, that is, you know, 15% of an extremist database having military service, again, substantiated my further concerns for why I went down this path. Mm -hmm. And then as you start pulling that out of the named ones that you knew that the the uh, prosecution project was able to uh, provide me, this goes back to April of 1995 and Tim mm -hmm. McVeigh, mm -hmm. still to this mm -hmm. day, the largest terrorist attack, uh, you know, on U.S. soil. Um, and he was a former U.S. Army sergeant and Gulf War veteran. Right. Then you move forward to 2009, and the, everyone knows of Nadal Hassan and the rampage at Fort Hood, killing 13 soldiers and civilians. You know, he was an Army psychiatrist based on ISIS, I, I mean, uh, Al-Qaeda ideologies at that time, having actually communicated with the AQAP leader, Anwar Lakwi. And then you, you move forward in a more current day, and there's, there's even more examples, which is unfortunate. Like 2016... You have Micah Johnson, who was a um, former Army Reserve soldier, but he killed five police officers in Dallas, Texas, all for his view of wanting to kill white people, especially white police officers. Or July 2017, Kaya Kang, who was arrested for his support to ISIS and had intended to go into downtown Honolulu and kill people. He was currently on active duty when he was about to do that and thankfully fell into another FBI sting disruption before he was able to do that. Um, so, th so those are just a couple of examples. Sure. Uh, and I know, and unfortunately I could go on because there's so many more domestic extremist examples that have occurred really in the last two years. And so would you say, based on your research and based on what you've been following so far, is, is this a matter of the, uh, the danger is, uh, or the, the number of cases is increasing, or are we simply becoming better able to track the cases so the evidence is becoming more visible? Unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I think we are becoming more acutely aware of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a certain level of acknowledgement that I, you know, I have to provide the DOD entities out there doing this, and certainly the FBI, who, you know, at any one time has hundreds of counterterrorism investigations open. And, and when I did my research at this time of hundreds, you know, maybe close to a thousand, 10%, they were tracking as domestic terrorism investigations that actually had a military service member, whether they were former, current, or um, had been retired. That, again, those are statistical numbers that does not comfort me as a military serving member or a former commander, battalion commander. Right. Um, or, 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 a, or an agent to the FBI for that matter. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> and so we're just facing, but here's the thing is this is not a new concern. Mm -hmm. That's what's was so frustrating to find in the research. Um, I, I, like I'll give you an example. Um, the DH office of Intel and analysis put out a, a document. Mm -hmm. And in that 
They said right-wing extremists will attempt to recruit and radicalize returning veterans to exploit their skills and knowledge derived from military training and combat. These skills have the knowledge and potential to boost capabilities of extremists, including lone wolves or small terrorist cells to carry out violence. The willingness of a small percentage of military to join extremist groups because they were formerly trained, disgruntled, disillusioned, or suffering from the psychological effects of war is being replicated today. Hmm. When do you think that was written? That was in 2009. And that was pushed forward to Congress And because it met so much resistance from congressional liaisons, Janet Napolitano, the Homeland Security Secretary at the time, had to apologize on behalf of producing the Intel product. And that's because people thought that somehow it was it was either uh, politically biased or or somehow an insult to the service for suggesting this. Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. And, And I can understand that. You know, as a current serving member, in, in the same way that I understand it's not fair to demonize PTSD just because mm-hmm. so many veterans have it right. and that it's led us to do bad things. Um, but here's the, the challenge. I, I remember talking to one of my behavioral analysis counterparts, and, and he said it well when he's talking about once they become disenfranchised with their military service. Mm-hmm. It's this sense of purpose or identity in the military that they, for some reason, can't reconcile. So whether they're in the military or they're about to leave the military, the military in its mission to conduct combat is, is asking us to, to do that on behalf of an ideology, a belief in our nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when they can't rationalize that for some reason or they become disillusioned, it just creates this environment for radicalization. And that's what ties the military. And then the, and the more heightened concern is the fact that we have training and weapons, um, you know, combat experience, uh, communications, um, you know, things that would make it more concerning, especially from my perspective as an investigator. Sure. Well, and and so to to circle back to something we started talking about, so that within the within the service, of course, you know, people have people have free. Uh, certain degree, they, they have free speech rights of a, of a sort. Um, if it ever gets to the point that a service, uh, a service member uh, has really stands out, uh, you know, sort of sticks out for uh, dangerous radical ideas or begins to be seen by, uh, by comrades, by commanding officers as a threat of one kind or another, it is possible that someone can be vol- involuntarily separated, or it's possible that that person might become frustrated or might might separate as well. When they, if someone were to leave the service after having been, for one reason or another, identified as someone with uh, potentially radical or dangerous views, is there any automatic handoff to uh, uh, law enforcement, or is it just you know once you leave the service, the service has completed its responsibility for keeping an eye on you so we as an fbi um, uh, agent having worked on three joint terrorism task forces to include supervising one Mm. dear god i hope so (laughs) (laughs) that the handoff occurs that it is coordinated appropriately from the chain of command through the respective components law enforcement agencies um you know in our case army cid or the 902nd MI, military intelligence, should be handing that kind of information. The the challenge is getting in front of it. Mm -hmm. And where I've seen from a personal standpoint is several investigations um, 
that there was more value from an investigative standpoint to actually ask the service component to hold on to the service member that is expressing or there's a reason for these extremist views and the concern because hmm. there's more control that the military has because once they've been separated mm -hmm. uh, whether it's voluntary or involuntary then they're they're into the population mm -hmm. and there's a lot less controls that we have i know everyone's shocked to hear an fbi say that but there's a lot less controls that we have to monitor that potential threat right and so it's so important that when it's when it's seen within the ranks that, that the dod and both the fbi work collaboratively in determining the best way to do that and and i there's a particular investigation that stood out in mind that has now since hit the news so I can more openly talk about it that kind of motivated me to, to look into this research. And that was the uh, racially motivated extremist group called the base. The base, right. Which ironically um, is, of course, the English translation of Al Qaeda. <laughs> yes, ironically, which I don't I don't think these guys were smart enough to even probably know that. <laughs> but they were they made an open attempt to, to utilize military members and, and two of those mm. members were former military and, and it, it extends to groups like um adam waffen um mm. that one was one that predated uh the base but is still fairly recent where in 2018 the founding member of adam waffen which was a neo-nazi white supremacist group because because adam waffen means atomic weapon in german right um he was actively serving in the Florida Army National Guard and went in with the intention to get military training as he went around recruiting further. And uh, there, there's an amazing PBS Frontline uh, expose on it that I would encourage anyone to watch if they kind of wanted to get into the mindset of it. But they said they want to recruit veterans. And one of the former members of Adam Waffen that was um, interviewed in they never named him, but he said, we wanted to appeal to veterans. If you take an average 19 year old from Adam Waffen, his only experience of war is video games versus some guy like me who knows himself and war. People looked up to the military guys and we were at least using the training they had given us to hit back at them. Oh, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I heard that. You know? Right. Well, and, and so in that case is how did, uh, you know, did, uh, how long, did he stay in the Florida National Guard before uh, his membership in Atomwaffen actually had consequences? Oh, he was in. He, I mean, and, and there was a lot of things that, based on my open research, things he had said, asked about equipment that probably were red flags that never really just translated and got reported. Mm. And so it, it was known, I believe, during the investigation but what ultimately, once he was arrested, is when he was separated. Right. <laughs> and unfortunately, that just happened, too. It, uh, this is October of 2020, the Wolverine Watchmen. Mm -hmm. Right. With so this is that self-described Michigan militia that was going to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Indeed. And, and ignite a civil war, I believe, storming the state capitol. Right. Well, so thankfully, again, the FBI disrupted the plot and over 13 people were arrested. Um, based on open source reporting, we've confirmed at least two of them were former or were Marines. 
Mm -hmm. One had just separated from active duty and one was in the Marine Corps Reserve upon upon the arrest. And I believe there may have been another member that had been former uh, U.S. Army. That's three, you know, that's again, it still highly concerning and even more and more examples right. of why this is a national security concern. Well, and so what do you think in, in your SRP, but also in your, in your subsequent work and as you think about this, what sort of policy changes or policy additions do you think would help to better uh, get in front of this problem of radicalization in the ranks and the radicalization of former service, service members? Well, I, th- I think first and foremost, everyone, it's, it's that understanding mm-hmm. of, of the accepting that this is a problem. Um, and, and I get it. I mean, it's, again, contentious because the irony of military extremism of, of itself is that when we take a military oath, I mean, we swear to defend the Constitution that allows for people to have ideologies like this and radicalize. Mm-hmm. But we have to recognize that within our ranks, both, you know, current serving and those that have separated, there are people that will have a misaligned ideology that will mobilize to a violent act and kill and hurt others. So the first is acceptance mm-hmm. that this is a true problem. I think the, the next step is looking towards DOD, working collaboratively with some of these academic institutions to do a much more deep dive of research. Uh, much like the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI did um, in what was called the lone offender study. Mm-hmm. And within the lone offender study, which happened in 2019, they took a random sampling of 52 lone offenders that had carried out violent attacks and furtherance of an ideology right. and radicalized, and they either attempted or completed the attack. So they, they, they were just samples. Well, there was 52 of those. And in, even in their own sample, they found that 19 of those 52, which was 37%, had served in the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. Well, we need more studies, I think, like that specific to finding these extremists that have served in the military and then going to their group and their circles around them and asking questions as to what were the tripwires. What were the things that were occurring so that current studies that the DOD is doing, especially with their um, specific to the people analytics. uh, So the National Defense Authorization Act has asked the people analytics of DOD to do a study through surveys of try to find extremist behaviors. It's more of that so that we can try to get in front of the problem rather than waiting for it to happen. And I guess that's where we get into the interesting challenge for for law enforcement, for anything like this, is how do we measure the effectiveness of policy? Because uh, we certainly can't measure it thinking that somehow we're going to eliminate the eliminate all danger. It's like we don't measure the we don't measure the uh, effectiveness of law enforcement based on the complete abolition of crime. But how <laughs> how do you well, at least not so far? So how do we how do we imagine how how we as a society or how any of these institutions would measure the effectiveness? Uh, I, mean, I guess first you have to start with collecting the information as you've talked about, but but thinking thinking ahead, right? How what would what would effective policies towards radicalization look like? I think the first thing has to do with awareness and training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so DOD has is, is done this well to some extent. 
uh, across service components. You know, we have insider threat hubs, we have annual trainings, but it has to go further than that, especially among the command ranks. Because within, as if I'm a, if I'm a commander mm-hmm. and I have my first sergeant or my command sergeant major, and we have a problem within our, our formation and it's brought to our attention, it is our natural military culture to want to handle it. Mm-hmm. And that is not always the best answer. And when we're talking about extremism, Mm -hmm. because we may not want to handle it head on or just tell them to shut up. We may want them to continue their behavior so that we can employ the appropriate mitigation or monitoring to determine if it truly is a a greater concern. Mm -hmm. But to measure what you're asking, um, you know, the FBI has, has developed this for quite some time, 100 years later. And we measure our success by how we mitigate threats mm-hmm. not now now a metric of arrests um you know how many indictments we have those are metrics but at the end of the day if we've mitigated threats that that is that is the true success especially for those that work counterterrorism mm-hmm. so jttfs you know i like to often describe my existence as we're the where the uh, fire extinguisher on the wall, you, you don't want to have to break that mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. something really bad has happened if you're mobilizing the full force of the FBI's counterterrorism efforts. Right. And in this instance, there is a lot more collaboration, I think, that could be done within DOD to mm-hmm. try to get after and mitigate this because it's so siloed and you have a tremendous opportunity because the law enforcement entities sit at the Russell Knox location at Quantico. So they're already all together. Hmm. I think it's just a, at, a, at a moment in time where there's enough congressional oversight, there's enough media attention that it's potentially a good idea to start talking about a military extremist task force mm-hmm. and, and, and maybe a s- specific DOD reporting database that would um, – change so that not each service component has insider threat reporting. So it goes into one place. Right. Because I think there's a a potential for losing things between the space between the cases. Um, And and NCIS may be doing one thing while Army CID is doing another and and they not even have the ability to deconflict. Right. Well, and so the idea, to use your uh, fire extinguisher analogy, right, the idea is not that you're going to outlaw fires, but you hope that uh, if if people uh, take care to, you know, control the collection of flammable materials and store them properly and keep an eye on them and install smoke detectors uh, and make sure to change the batteries, then we would probably be safer, even if we will never be 100% safe. Right, right. And I... I think one of the challenges DOD is up against is, you know, it's a large entity and there's a, you know, a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of people that are really trying to do the right thing that I've, but I, I will say this, the, the one entity within DOD is the um, insider threat management analytics center. They call it DITMAC. Mm-hmm. And um, I was speaking to a uh, unnamed behavioral uh, advisor during the course of my research. And what just shocked me is when he was, talking about the receipt of any potential threat within DOD uh, of an extremist or even an insider threat. He said, you know, if I think my neighbor is a terrorist, I know who to call the FBI or, or through their local police. Right. Mm-hmm. 
He goes, but if I think that person, military or DOD civilian, in the unit or cube next to me is a terrorist, I'm not exactly sure who to call. And that concerns me as an investigator mm -hmm. um, and as someone who's looked at this topic for some time. Interesting. Well, one can hope that with further research, we'll figure out uh, who to, who should be called and how people can call them. Uh, that's not the most hopeful thought upon which to end this, but it is a practical point that we can think about going forward. But unfortunately, we are just about out of time for this conversation. Uh, it's a complicated subject. Uh, Colonel Payne, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your research and to talk about this. And I hope that our listeners have found this uh, conversation as uh, as illuminating uh, as, as I did. So thanks very much, Robert Payne. Absolutely. I'm glad to do it and uh, appreciate getting this message out to others and anybody that wants to collaborate since I'm still a research fellow uh, assigned to Homeland Defense and Security Studies at the Army War College. I, I'm, I'm open for business to uh, collaborate and help further this research. Outstanding. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for listening in. If you want to contact Colonel Payne, please do through the Army War College. But in general, thank you for joining us and listening to A Better Peace. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us suggestions for future programs. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace on the podcatcher of your choice, because of course you would like to subscribe to A Better Peace, we ask that you rate and review this podcast so that others may find it as well to continue to grow this community so that we can continue to have these sorts of conversations. We're always interested in hearing from you, and we hope that you are interested in hearing from us. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.